Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of The Crude Report. My name is Jim Washer, I'm Editor-in-Chief here at Argus and joining me once again from Dubai is our Middle East Editor Nada Itayim. Today we're reflecting on last month's OPEC meeting, where that leaves the alliance given the current turbulence in oil markets, their output policy options beyond August and also what influence Joe Biden's forthcoming visit to the Middle East might have. So Nada, thanks for joining me today. And let's start by just recapping what happened at that meeting last month. What is it that OPEC decided? Thank you, Jim. Uh, good to be here. Good to do this after a while. So when it comes to the last OPEC meeting, it was essentially a very run-of-the-mill meeting, a very quick meeting. They essentially did what we all expected they would do. They ratified the decision that they took at the previous meeting to bring back around 648,000 barrels per day you know, of production back in August. That was interesting, and it's sort of a special moment here because that, in theory, means that with these incremental barrels, with these 648,000 barrels per day, they've effectively now come to the end of this two-year or so process of returning the near 10 million barrels per day of production that OPEC and their, uh, you know, non-OPEC partners, OPEC, OPEC Plus, that they removed from the market in May 2020, you know, in response to the start of the COVID-19 pandemic and the collapse in oil demand that came as a result. Okay, so where does that leave the group going into its next meeting? Right, so as I mentioned, the previous meeting was pretty easy going. A large majority of these meetings over the last, I don't know, six to nine months, they've pretty much been the same. They've essentially gone in there and rubber stamped uh, the decisions they've taken previously. But the upcoming meeting, so I think it's early next month, that should really prove to be, I want to say, exciting, because it, it'll essentially be the, the meeting that they're going to sit down and try to figure what comes next, what happens next for the group. So far, the policy moves have, to a large extent, always really been mapped out for them several months in advance. Each time they actually decided on policy, they regularly decide on policy for not just that month and the month of the next month, but just three, four, five months ahead. But now, with um, OPEC members theoretically returning the last of the May 2020 cut in August, the path is now kind of clear for them. It's a clean slate. Now, on the one hand, it's kind of a blessing in that they won't really be handcuffed by the quota system anymore, sort of saying, you know, this country can bring on this much and this country can bring on that much. But for the same reason, it could also be a curse and, I mean, I, I could say expose. It could be a curse and expose them more than they already are. When I say expose, I'm, of course, sort of talking about this much-discussed issue or problem of dwindling spare capacity. And that's not just within the OPEC group, but, you know, globally. For a host of reasons, I mean, primarily the lack of investment over the last few years, sanctions on some countries, domestic politics and security issues in some countries. I mean, several members of this OPEC Plus group, they've really failed to keep up with their quotas for much of the past, I don't know, six to nine months which has uh, contributed to uh, you know, the group really falling behind schedule when it comes to their monthly editions. This is why I said a little earlier that August will theoretically see the end of the process, because as of June, according to Argus's latest uh, production survey that came out last week, the group's overall output, or rather the overall production from these countries, bound by the deal, it was lagging. I mean, we were around two and a half million barrels per day below target. Okay, so we're at a bit of a crossroads here, really. Are we getting any sense of what options are on the table after August? Are we getting any insight on this from, from delegates? 
regarding what comes next, to be perfectly honest with you, I mean, we've been we've been having conversations, we've been speaking to lots of delegates over the last few days and, and, and since last week, but we've really heard very little from them about what comes next. And it's a surprise. I mean, they, they were saying that it hasn't really been discussed. It wasn't brought up at the meeting. It hasn't, you know, even behind closed doors or just unilaterally, bilaterally. They're not really speaking about this kind of thing yet. And given really how much forward planning they've been operating with throughout the last few years, it really does come as a surprise to me and, and a lot of people I spoke to this about. So whether they have or not broached the subject, I don't know. But as far as what they're telling us, they haven't. It's going to be tricky for sure, specifically because of the spare capacity issue I mentioned. Effectively, we're looking at a situation where, you know, in a group of 20 or so countries, only, uh, you know, a small handful really have any kind of genuine spare capacity to use up here. And, and the lion's share of, of that is with Saudi Arabia and the UAE and to a much lesser extent, uh, Kuwait. Assuming current production capacity of, say, 12 million barrels per day for, for Saudi Arabia, around 4 million barrels per day for the UAE and, and say, 3 million barrels per day for Kuwait, we're looking at about 2.7 million barrels per day in total for all three of them. Having said that, we're also, I mean, mentioning the 12 million, 4 million, we're also talking about capacity levels that really neither of these countries have sustainably produced at for a period of time in the past. So this would be, you know, new territory completely. So there are some question marks there. Now, there's also, of course, Iran that could comfortably bring on, say, around 1 million barrels per day or so in fairly short order, I mean, within, let's say, six to nine months. But obviously, Iran is under sanctions, so they're, they're not really part of the conversation at the moment. Now, with these realities in mind, you'd think that these Mideast Gulf producers, the ones you mentioned, they'd really have to do most of the heavy lifting if OPEC or OPEC Plus were to decide, you know, any additional supply is needed over the coming few months, at least until the end of the year. There's no real way around that. But even so, I mean, my hunch here is that even if they do the heavy lifting, um, even if the majority or, or the entirety of these additional barrels comes from these countries, any increase would really be done sort of under the guise of an OPEC or OPEC plus increase rather than some kind of unilateral action. Preserving unity among the members of this OPEC plus group, it's really been the cornerstone of the success that they've had over the past few years. And Saudi Arabia, the UAE, I mean, these countries know that very well. And these kind of countries being seen to go it alone or, or being perceived to go it alone some way, I mean, that would really threaten that kind of unity. And it's really something that they want to avoid. Okay, you, you mentioned Iran, which I want to come back to in a minute. But, but first of all, let's stick with this spare capacity issue, because into this situation we have this week the visit of Joe Biden to the Gulf. He's obviously worried about energy prices, rising gasoline prices at home. He's putting pressure on a domestic producer to increase production. It's going to be highly surprising if a similar message isn't shared with producers in the Gulf this week. How is that going to influence things? What bearing is that going to have on the path OPEC Plus is going to take now? Right. So um, there has been a lot said and a lot reported over the last few weeks ahead of this trip. In short, I would say it could. Frankly, it could actually explain why the OPEC Plus group decided to leave any conversations they had around what to do next, what to do post-August until after the visit. I mean, OPEC Plus is now meeting um, early August. So I think that, that could be behind you know, that decision. I mean, this is a Middle East, this is really a, a Middle East uh, trip. I mean, he's, he's first heading to Israel and Palestine first before flying and going to Saudi Arabia. 
the U.S. has over the last, I don't know, nine months, one year, maybe more, it's really been one of the loudest voices pushing Saudi Arabia and OPEC and OPEC Plus to, to produce more and rage production more aggressively. And Biden has, ahead of this trip at least, he's repeatedly said that, you know, his visit to the kingdom is about more than just energy or just, you know, more than asking for additional supplies from the region. He was asked whether he'd actually ask Saudi Arabia for more in particular. He said, no, he's not going to ask Saudi Arabia, but he's going to ask the, you know, the GCC, the Gulf producers as a whole to consider raising production in the hope that they themselves will consider such a thing to be you know, in their own interest. Now, on the energy side in particular, personally, from where I'm standing, I think expectations really need to be managed for a number of reasons now. I mean, again, from where I'm standing, it doesn't look likely that, that Biden's going to be securing any kind of major wins on this particular front. Quite simply, I mean, the main reason here is because Saudi Arabia and the OPEC Plus group as a whole They've been making it abundantly clear to us and really anyone that listen that it's not in their interest to be raising production unnecessarily and using up what little spare capacity they actually have and the world has unless absolutely critical. To them, higher prices now, of course, it's a problem, but eroding what little spare capacity we have left is a much more a much more serious issue that they frankly don't even want to uh, contend with or have to worry about unless absolutely critical. So what I think we could be seeing, because it's obviously the optics are important here, and I think Biden would want to come out with something, and they would like to at least on both sides look like they're coming out on the same page. I think what we could see is a commitment from Saudi Arabia and the GCC countries, but you know, as OPEC, I guess, OPEC Plus, to monitor the market and commit to taking action if needed to, say, balance the market, you know, something like that. But I, I mean, I don't expect more than that. On the oil side in particular, the energy side, I think the U.S. has effectively gotten everything it would have hoped to get from the Middle East. I mean, largely in the shape of the decision by OPEC Plus a couple of meetings ago to essentially speed up the return of its production, the return of its barrels, speed it up by one month, expedite by one month. So for me, I mean, this trip is, as Biden keeps saying, it, it's more about energy. I think this is where it's other areas in which uh, Biden hopes to actually get some of those wins. This trip is going to be more about Israel and improving relations between Israel and you know other Middle East countries, uh, Saudi Arabia in particular. I mean, this would be high on the agenda for him. Obviously, there's uh, the Gulf countries all have, a lot of them at least, have the same concerns, let's say, about Iran when it comes to security. I think security will be high up on the list, and probably this is where Biden is going to be focusing most of his efforts and hoping to get the most out of on this trip. Okay, well, you mentioned Iran, which I wanted to come back to. This seems to be drifting a bit, hope fading here a bit for the JCPOA. I mean, where do things stand on Iran at the moment? I apologize in advance because it feels like uh, I end up saying the same things every time we discuss the issue. But genuinely, it feels like we're still at this kind of dead end. We're at a situation where the actual negotiation process, which involved the Iranians and the Americans and the EU and the other partners, the JCPOA, where at least they were in the same city and there was some kind of discussion, even if it was indirect, that process really ended in March. There was a hope that we could revive things and, and get things moving again uh, soon after. But uh, it seems like whatever momentum there was that quickly just faded and as time passed, the situation just kept getting worse and worse and that uh, Iran kept raising the stakes and the Americans on their side as well 
would add additional sanctions. And the situation's just become more complicated. There was a small ray of hope um, a couple of weeks ago. The EU, which has really been pushing to try and get these discussions over the line for quite some time now, obviously now with the situation in Russia and energy scarcity and trying to actually establish some kind of energy security for the group with Russian barrels sort of not really being part of the conversation as much now as it was in the past. The Europeans have have openly said that they would like some kind of a, a conclusion to these uh, Iran talks and actually lifting sanctions from Iran because Iran, as I mentioned, has roughly one million barrels that they could sort of bring to the market in, in a fairly short time if the situation improves on that side and sanctions are lifted. Now, the EU on its part was trying to sort of revive things. Um, Joseph Burrell, the foreign policy chief, went to Tehran and um, got a commitment from both sides to actually meet once again and to try and unblock, as he said, the negotiating process. Within a couple of days, talks were planned in Doha and Qatar, and quite quickly, everyone mobilized, went to Qatar in the hope that maybe we could see some kind of movement on this front. Unfortunately, it, it felt like the talks kind of ended before they even started. Shortly after 24 hours in, from both sides, we started hearing really you know, negative assessments of what had happened. On the Iranian side, they felt that the Americans came with nothing new. On the American side, they felt that the Iranians were coming out with uh, new additional demands. I mean, long story short, it's uh, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere fast. We have seen in the last couple of days that... Uh, there has been some kind of diplomatic movement and action and buzz around Tehran and, and the Iranians have been meeting with uh, the Qataris and the Omanis in the hope that maybe we might actually have another round of talks soon and not wait another few months. But from what we're hearing from the American side, they're not convinced that, you know, unless something changes, they're not convinced that we can actually get something uh, anytime soon. It just feels like both sides are, are not willing to budge to actually make this deal happen. So uh, as far as the return of Iranian barrels is concerned, I think we might have to wait a little bit longer for that. Okay, we're getting close to time, but, you know, we can't really discuss OPEC without mentioning the very, very sad news last week about Dr. Barkindo, the OPEC Secretary General, who died suddenly last week in Nigeria. He obviously has led OPEC through a very, very difficult time, lots of challenges in terms of the COVID pandemic and then the latest turbulence around the Russia-Ukraine conflict and has done so with great skill and diplomacy. How would you sort of sum up his achievements as OPEC Secretary General? Right. Thank you for bringing it up. I mean, absolutely. It was incredibly sad news. Several days have passed and I still can't really get my head around it. I'm sort of in shock still. Mr. Barkindo was was one of a kind. I, I've been covering OPEC for, I don't know, 10, 12 years now. And, and obviously, I've been there since uh, Mr. Barkindo's first day. Obviously, he's been around the OPEC scene for decades now. And it kind of showed whenever you used to speak to anybody about Mr. Barkindo, people are only saying the, the nicest things about him. And he was genuinely a, a very, very honest, very kind, genuine individual. And, and on a personal level, he will be missed. He was always good to people like myself, to all the journalists, and you know he'd refer to everybody as my friend, and he'd make everyone feel really at home, and he'd really make time for you, uh, even if we were asking him the tough questions. So on that level, on a personal note, you know it, it it was very sad news, and frankly, I just want to give my condolences to to his family, from from us, and, and and to the OPEC family more generally. But yeah, I mean, when it comes to his achievements, I mean, his achievements speak for himself. As you mentioned, he, he really kind of steered OPEC through what are some 
really complicated times. Now we talk about OPEC plus and, and frankly, OPEC plus today, it's kind of a household name at this point in time, at least in the energy world. And that's largely down to uh, Mr. Barkindo's efforts over the last few years, really from its inception of this idea of bringing in non-OPEC. I mean, he was there, he was been driving this. I mean, he's done the miles. He had to really kind of guide this group of, uh, of the 20 plus countries through a lot. And uh, I mean, this is his legacy. And um, I know that he was incredibly proud of not only what he achieved, but what the group has been achieving. And, and frankly, um, all the success that it has had. I mean, it's, uh, I think it's fair to say is largely done to him. Well said, Nada. Yes, that's, as you say, it's quite a legacy he's left behind after a very, very turbulent few years for the organization and for the markets. Okay. Well, look, we should wrap up there, I think. Thank you, uh, as ever, for your time today. We've got an interesting few weeks ahead of us, starting with that, that Biden visit. If you want to keep up to date with our coverage of OPEC news and analysis, then why not subscribe to Argus Global Markets or Petroleum Argus, or both of them, indeed. And you can find more information on these services at www.argusmedia.com. So thanks for tuning in, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of The Crude Report.